This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, Andrew Biswell speaks to writer, editor and biographer Catherine Bucknell about Christopher Isherwood's 1964 novel, A Single Man a novel Burgess calls a fine piece of plain writing that haunts the memory. Often hailed as Christopher Isherwood's masterpiece, a single man tells the story of George, an English professor living in suburban Los Angeles and grieving the death of his lover, Jim. Set over one day, in which George meets a variety of people who inspire him to rediscover the joys of life, the novel is a deeply moving study of grief, and a sensitive portrait of the aftermath of a committed gay relationship, published at a time when notions such as same-sex marriage were controversial and prohibited by law. Christopher Isherwood was born near Stockport, England in 1904. His early life was coloured by the death of his father in the First World War, and his experiences at school and university, where he met W.H. Auden, Edward Upward, Stephen Spender and Cecil Day-Lewis. In 1929, he travelled to Weimar Berlin with Auden, which provided material for a sequence of novels, most notably Goodbye to Berlin, which was the basis for the hit musical Cabaret. Isherwood emigrated to the United States in 1939, first to New York with Auden, and then to California, where he worked as a screenwriter and lecturer. In 1953, he met Don Bacardi, and they formed a lifelong relationship Isherwood died in 1986, aged 81. Catherine Bucknell is a biographer, editor and novelist. She has edited three volumes of Isherwood's diaries and The Animals, a volume of letters between Isherwood and Bacardi, which is also the basis of an 11-episode podcast hosted by Catherine. Her novels include Leninsky Prospect, Canarino, What You Will and Plus One. She's the founder of the W.H. Auden Society and the director of the Christopher Isherwood Foundation. She's currently working on a major new biography of Christopher Isherwood. We've put all of the relevant links and a list of all the books mentioned in the description of this episode. Here's Andrew Biswell, who spoke to Catherine Bucknell about A Single Man in November 2022. It's a great pleasure to welcome Catherine Bucknell to the 99 Novels podcast, uh, here to talk about Isherwood, uh, a single man, and Isherwood more widely. Um, Catherine's also the editor of uh, the multi-volumes of Isherwood's diary um, and has done a lot of very distinguished work on Auden and Isherwood and the world of the 1930s more broadly. So welcome, first of all, Catherine. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Oh, thank you. Pleasure to be here. I wonder if I could begin by asking you 
about your first encounter with Isherwood's writing and indeed how that writing struck you when you first read it? I think it was, I'm sure it was 1977 when I was an undergraduate uh, and read Goodbye to Berlin in one of those surveys of modern literature. And, uh, you know, so that was not long after Cabaret the movie had become a very big deal. I'm not sure in my innocence that I even saw the connection. I do recall finding it a very different kind of writing uh, than in my, I don't know, youthful enthusiasm for drama, melodrama, romance, whatever. Uh, It seemed very um, lucid and bleak and a bit um, I, I think the story I remember the best uh, from that first reading is the Novaks, which, um, you know, I thought, why is this man so interested in going and living in a slum tenement? Uh, I puzzled over that at great length. Uh, and, you know, looking back, that's really what Christopher Isherwood, I think, in, uh intended, you know, for us to really think about uh, why that narrator was there. Uh, and it's not, it's not perhaps so simple as even now we might, we might think. I know there's a, a big story um, to do with the background of the novel. Its gestation happened over a number of years and was, was fairly uh, sedate, uh, as it were. Uh, we do know that Isherwood began working on a book titled The English Woman, about uh, an English expatriate living in California. And perhaps you could tell us a little more about the genesis of this novel, how the English woman metamorphosed into the novel published as a single man. The English woman is a, is a, is a wonderful project that that was. You know, he was mulling on, uh, he'd been reading Willa Cather, all those um you know, Song of the Lark, The Professor's House, My Mortal Enemy, all those wonderful books about singular women's lives um, lived, you know, maybe in the kind of lonely quiet of very big places. Um, And then he saw a kind of trajectory back to Turgenev, Maupassant. Um, And he thought he would write about that. Uh, so he started off with um, this character that he, he right away named Charlotte, Charlie, and kind of based on his friend Iris Tree, who'd lived in California for a long time and then gone back in the early 1950s to to Europe. And she, he gave her a son um, who was a kind of an American son, uh, not unlike the Kenny character in A Single Man, but the key moment really came when he was, he was, he, he'd written quite a lot of this and he was bogging down thinking he wasn't really learning new things about his characters, wasn't making progress with the book. And he sat on the beach one morning talking to his partner, Don Bacardi, uh, with whom he lived for 33 years. And actually they weren't going through a great, patch at that time. Bacardi was making kind of a bid for maybe his freedom. Um, but he was always very interested and very generous with Isherwood's work. And he said, you know, why, why are you writing about this English woman? Maybe it's about an English man. And it was a, 
it was a an epiphany for Isherwood that he thought, yeah, it's it's an English man, and he he changed the title to the Englishman, um, and you know moved the focus quickly onto that character, um, and then and then developed it in in many many other ways from there. But that that turn from thinking it would be about a woman living on her own, uh, an outsider in in America. Uh, to being a man, it just brought him that much closer to the core of his own experience. Um, still, still a distance from himself. So the freedom to to fictionalize and and make up stuff. But um, yeah, that was that was the key uh, change, I think. I, I like that moment very much, which is there in your edition of the diaries, where uh, Isherwood is on the beach in California. Um, uh, liminal place uh, uh, where I suppose he did so much of his living and some of his thinking also that the change occurred through dialogue with with Don Bacardi um, and uh, I can see in the light of that how maybe Isherwood is still present to some extent in in this book through the character of Charlotte who uh, addresses some of his own questions about uh, identity and migration and so forth um, there is a question here, which is, what do you think were his reasons for wanting to maybe shake off that English identity, um, Isherwood himself, to become an American citizen, indeed an American writer? And how is that process reflected in this novel, A Single Man? You know, he'd been on the run from his English identity since he was a youngster, certainly since the time he was bounced out of Cambridge. Um as an undergraduate, he didn't finish his degree. Um, and after that, he, you know, wandered in Europe. I mean, he went to Berlin. That was the great sort of liberating moment of his life. He didn't fit in. I mean, what he said about America was he, he went there in search of his sexual homeland. And he did name, you know, in later life in the 70s, when he was writing Christopher and His Kind, he named really his sexual identity and his search for his sexual homeland is the as the the key theme in all of his um in all of his searchings for for a home but I, you know i think he he never really was comfortable with the british empire with the army with the church and all of those things um very programmatic and institutional. He he was never comfortable in big institutions. So you see him from a very young age trying to get out from under the really close-knit family circle. Um, I mean, he was related to, it seems like, half of Southern England uh, and Northern England too, by the way. Um, and and everyone he he went to school with, you know, he he would run into cousins, and there would be elderly male relatives who were consulted about his future. So he was just really on the run from that from from young, and it became um, uh, more clearly articulated in in uh, you know his leftism in the '30s, and then by the end of the '30s, he became a pacifist. And he, he needed to be somewhere where he could be himself. And it was partly a process of discovering what himself actually was. Um, and, I, you know, I think from very young, he'd had a lot of fantasies about America. I mean, kids watch Western movies and um, 
he went to school surrounded by Canadian soldiers during World War One, which I think to him was also America in a way. Um, and he first visited there in 1938, went to Manhattan. He just found it thrilling. So I think for him, everything said America, next place on the list. It was in some ways inevitable. There's a very odd period in his life where he goes with Auden uh, at the beginning of 1939 to New York, intending, I think, to begin a new life there. And uh, Auden remained. Issued, as I understand it, just couldn't get on with New York, couldn't stand it. And and he fled. He made that migration to the West Coast, uh, which is where this novel locates itself. What was the appeal of California uh, over and above and against New York, do you think? Oh, well, there were two things that, um, I mean, one is the weather. You know, Christopher Rich would just like to be outdoors in sunshine uh, and that from a very young age. But, you know, more importantly, since since he was, um, uh, you know, nine or ten, he, he was obsessed with the movies. He'd always wanted to write for the movies. Uh, you know, he wrote his first screenplay in London in the winter of 1933-34 with uh, Bertolt Vertol and Vertol's family was already settled in California. And um, one of the first things that happened when, when Isherwood got there was he started working on a movie with, with Bertolt Vertol. Um, so I, I think he played down perhaps that part of his um, wish to go to America because until he succeeded in the movies, he uh, you know, wasn't saying how much he wanted. You know, New York was um, very expensive, very cold, very busy. He was disappointed in the reception of his work there. I mean, you know, he he left New York just before uh, Goodbye to Berlin was um, well reviewed um, and 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 became a big deal. Um, also, um, Auden had always been a kind of younger brother figure for Isherwood, who was two and a half years older. And Auden kind of hit his stride in New York, was in demand, was lecturing, was writing poems. And um, Isherwood really needed some elbow room. He he had uh, liked to have this protege who was now um, becoming the kind of uh, more noticed figure. And, and, and he needed to get away and have his, his own space and his own um, identity. Thinking of California as it's represented in in the book, one of the things that strikes me rereading it for this conversation is how the presentation is um, it, it's quite satirical, um, but it's also uh, slightly sceptical. The, the word utopia um, comes up a few times in relation to um, the, the life that George is living on the West Coast there's the sense it's a kind of failed utopia that, that people have tried to um, establish um, a kind of American utopia and it's not quite working out. I, I wonder how important that um, that satirical aspect of, of the novel. Um, oh, I think is. it's really important. And by the way, you know, utopia, um, he didn't believe in that. And one of the reasons that, you know, the Charlotte character is, is she's, you know, she's going back to England. She's had the, the so-called utopian life and it hasn't made her happy. And her solution is to go back. And, you know, the George character um, is going to go forward. 
Um, but I think um, without getting into you know the religious elements in the novel or the, the the background is that Christopher Isherwood himself was a Hindu who believed in you know non-attachment. So the sort of material success of, of California is just not something that um, that he personally uh, bought into. He he would experience it, enjoy it, but all the while reminding himself, "This is Maya. This is not. This is not real." Um, and I think one of the things to, that, that we can see in the character, George, um, is, you know, he's determined to live in the moment and for the future. And um, it's not about a kind of material utopia. And so, yes, very important to be um, wary of that. Um, it's there. Um, there's no place better on earth that you could live if you think about living only in in a sort of earthly way. Isherwood, as we know, is one of the first mainstream literary novelists, along with Gore Vidal, to whom the book is dedicated, who came out as gay, who foregrounded his sexuality through his novels and non-fiction writing that he's published um, during the period of his, his American residence and, and new life there. I, I wonder how readers and critics responded to that presentation of gay sexualities in 1964? I just want to say that it's very important about the book being dedicated to Gore Vidal. You know, they'd been um, strategizing about how to change the culture for a a very long time together, the two of them. Um, And there's some, you know, wonderful correspondence about that. Uh, the, The reception of this book was um you know very very mixed uh, and there weren't any really um po- super positive reviews i mean i um isherwood's friends looked on this as a masterpiece he knew it to be a masterpiece you know there were a few um alan price jones thought it was great um it didn't matter to isherwood anymore that uh, he received all the usual kind of um, euphemistic, homophobic kind of uh, critiques. I mean, Elizabeth Hardwick in the New York Review of Books um, was, you know, surprisingly puritanical about it, just determined to see it as um, a kind of waning of powers because, well, because he was getting older and wasn't having children or something. She called it a tired, sad, biological melancholy running through it. Um, and then Time magazine, you know, acknowledged that George was homosexual, but then they referred to Jim as his roommate, whose death is a deprivation that has no meaning. Um, you know, so it just, he was used to this kind of um, knee-jerk reaction. And for, for finally, he was at a point in his career where I, I think it really did not affect him. What he cared about was um, um, Auden and Gore Vidal and... Uh, you know, many other uh, Capote, uh, you know, writers who, who he respected, who all hailed it as, um, well, now you're really um, on to a whole new area uh, and writing in a way you've never written before. And this is um, the beginning of uh, you can write anything now. Anthony Burgess reviews this book very positively uh, when it first comes out, and he admired it for two reasons. 
First of all, uh, because of the way it stands up for minorities. He thought that was very impressive. But also um, because he found similarities between A Single Man and James Joyce's Ulysses, his favourite novel. Uh, but another book in which everything takes place on a single day. And I wonder how far you think Isherwood would have been pleased by that comparison with Joyce, and indeed how far it helps us to understand the novel he's written. Yeah, no, I don't think he would have been that pleased. I think the pertinent uh, book here is Virginia Woolf's novel, Mrs. Dalloway, which Isherwood uh, read in in that kind of down phase when he was um you know trying to make this transition from the english woman to the english man and um he found mrs dalloway he was just blown away by it and and he had of course read virginia wolf before um he wrote in his diary it's one of the most truly beautiful novels or prose poems or whatever that i have ever read it's prose written with absolute pitch, a perfect ear. You could perform it with instruments. Could I write a book like that and keep within the nature of my own style? I'd love to try. Uh, you know, what he found in Wolf was a kind of emotional range uh, that he did not find in Joyce. And although he had loved Joyce as a young man, I think he was looking for something uh, not so cerebral, not so intellectual. Um, I mean, Joyce is just, you know, immensely complex, but in a way there's an element of sensuality in Virginia Woolf's writing uh, that he was after. And he wanted, um, uh, he wanted that poetry and that lyrical interior uh, world that had more, you know, a very fine emotional range that he that he did not find in Joyce. I mean, okay, yes, your your books on you know one day. Um, clearly, these are you know both big um, models in in the back of his mind. But I I, I think um, you know this is a small and delicate book, um, and uh, the, the the mythical parts are um you know so um assimilated and so um absorbed in the in the material you don't need um a kind of workbook to go at this to help you out with you know what some of the uh games are uh with words or uh with with earlier literary models Burgess, in his commentary on A Single Man in 99 Novels, he says, uh, quote, it is a fine piece of plain writing which haunts the memory. And I wonder what you make of that as a statement about Isherwood's style. Is the book as plain as Burgess thinks it is? Obviously, I don't agree with that. And, um, you know, I find um, it's, it's, it is very subtle, but it is poetry. And... Um, you'll find it's filled with alliteration and really um, haunting repetitions and rhythms. And if you read it out loud, I don't think you'll find it uh, plain. I think you'll find it light um, and spare, but not plain to me. And I've even found a passage 
I don't know if we have time to read it, but I could direct people to it in the in the later part of the novel where George goes to the bar down in the bottom of the canyon, which he in in the novel it's called the Starboard Side, and he writes he sorry Isherwood is writing about um, the summer of 1945 at the end of the war, and the description of the starboard side just in itself to me is just incredibly rich uh and poetic um can i read a little bit of it yes please that would be great um you pushed aside the blackout curtain and elbowed your way through a jam-packed bar crowd scarcely able to breathe or see for smoke here in the complete privacy of the din and the crowd you and your pickup yelled the preliminary sex advances at each other you could flirt but you couldn't fight. There wasn't even room to smack someone's face. For that, you had to step outside. Oh, the bloody battles and the sidewalk vomitings, the punches flying wide, the heads crashing backwards against the fenders of parked cars, huge diesel dykes slugging it out, grimmer far than the men, the siren wailing arrival of the police, the sudden swoopings of the shore patrol, girls dashing down from their apartments to drag some gorgeous endangered young drunk upstairs to safety and breakfast served next morning in bed like a miracle of joy. Hitchhiking servicemen delayed at this corner for hours, nights, days, proceeding at last on their journeys with black eyes, crab lice, clap, and only the dimmest memory of their hostess or host. And then the war's end, and the mad spree of driving up and down the highway on the instantly derationed gas, shredding great black chunks of your recaps all the way to Malibu, and then the beach months of 1946, the magic squalor of those hot nights when the whole shore was alive with tongues of flame, the watchfires of a vast, naked, barbarian tribe, each group or pair to itself and bothering no one, yet all a part of the life of the tribal encampment, swimming in the darkness, cooking fish, dancing to the radio, coupling without shame on the sand. George and Jim, who had just met, were out there among them evening after evening, yet not often enough to satisfy the sad, fierce appetite of memory as it looks back hungrily on that glorious Indian summer of lust. That's very impressive, isn't it? Uh, it, it? Whatever else it may be, it's not plain. Um, it, it's it, it not is, plain. It, it's it's very a, moving. He even gets yeah. carried away. I mean, it's even a bit outrageous. You know, he's like he's off on this thing, and he's just going for it. He, you know, the tongues of flame. I, you know, I laugh when I read that. I'm like, okay, you can get away with that. Just go for it. One of the other moments in the novel that um, it, it's a, a brilliant piece of writing. Um, though I think sometimes misunderstood, uh, partly because it's so mysterious, is the ending of the book, that transcendent ending, which seems to me to be full of ambiguity and joy and fearlessness in the face of death, or at least acceptance of the fact of death. Um, and, and it's a, a great sort of triumph, uh, it seems to me, and, and a sort of shout of affirmation. You mentioned how Ishwood's writing was informed by his uh, his Hinduism. And I, I wonder um, how much of that is is potentially present in the ending he gives us uh, in this novel. Of course, I think his religious beliefs 
um, would inform any account he gave us of death. Um, but, you know, it's very important that he holds back from ever mentioning Hinduism. And, you know, no reader should feel that they have to come to this with uh, some understanding of of Hinduism. It's now much more common to understand what do we mean by Maya, what do we mean by non-attachment than it was in 1964. And certainly in, you know, among kind of white British readers who were Christian if they, you know, had a religion. But it is very much an act of imagining George's death. And he keeps on saying, uh, Isherwood, the writer, keeps on saying, just let us suppose, let us suppose, let us suppose. This is, um, and he did this with great deliberation. He, he did say uh, um, about the ending, it's meant to be ambiguous. This is like, this could be a death that George might have. For me, when I read this book, I don't feel that George is dead at the end of the book. I feel that he's out there looking for his next lover. Uh, and it interests me that a lot of readers come away thinking George is dead. Uh, I don't think they've read it really, um, maybe carefully enough. I mean, certainly, uh, um, you know, as as a Hindu, strictly speaking, you believe you were either going to, um, you know, be reborn or be released if you've worked off all your karma. So the whole question of dying. I mean, in the Bhagavad Gita, we learn death is death is not real. Uh, uh, Christopher Isherwood was obsessed with death ever since his father had died in the First World War. It scared him. And he was always looking for a way to address that fear and overcome it. And so for him, the Hinduism was very in, in, important in doing that. And, and, and his personal relationship with his guru was was the core of that. It was the most important. There is a, a passage that people often refer to. Um, it's a kind of beautiful metaphor that they like to say this is it kind of works with Hinduism is um, when uh, it's the passage about the rock pools, you know, up the coast where, you know, when the tide is out, the rock pools are individual pools, like individual personalities. And when the tide comes in, they're part of the greater ocean. And that that's uh, a really good metaphor for understanding how the Atman within us as individuals is really part of Brahman, uh, the, the reality out there. Um, but you can just also understand that um, as, as um, a metaphor in, in itself without, without connecting it to Hinduism necessarily. He was very careful not to bring that into the, into the book. And is that what Isherwood means when he talks about the problem of the religious novel? It is wanting to write novels which were not overtly proselytizing uh, on behalf of, of any particular faith uh, and, as it were, meeting the reader halfway? No, I think when he talks about the problem of the religious novel, he's talking about how you show the progress of an ordinary person towards sainthood. He's talking about Tolstoy. He's talking about Dostoevsky. He's talking about uh, he's talking about Somerset Maugham and the Razor's Edge. He's talking about 
oh, there's a Huxley one he's also talking about, but it's he has a quite specific idea that the, um, you know, a religious novel is a specific thing that is showing the progress of someone who is going towards sainthood, whether, whether or not they know it. So no, actually, I, I don't think a, a religious, he's talking about that, that, that journey where a person departs from, from what they're, you know, let's say you're, let's say you're a warrior, uh, a soldier, as in, you know, uh, um, Tolstoy's novel, Father Sergius, and you, um, you, you're disillusioned, you go to a monastery, and, you know, then you're on a pathway to a completely different kind of life. Um, that's what he's talking about with the problem of the religious novel. How do you show that? How do you show why someone would give up um, a promising life, a material life, uh, to, tr- to, to turn toward sainthood? Uh, and, and the conflict and the difficulty uh, of that struggle. I don't think that that's what's going on with George. I think Isherwood has other novels that are about that. I think that the last part of Down There on a Visit, called Paul, that's an example of you know, a religious, it's, it's not a whole novel, um, Paul's story, but that's an example of, of how I think he would address you know, a religious novel. And then also his last novel, A Meeting by the River, is a religious novel. And it's overtly religious. It's about it's about whether or not to become a Hindu monk. It's a, a very interesting book. And again, Burgess reviewed it um, when when it came out. So perhaps we could say something about uh, the the meeting by the river. Uh, it's clearly a very important. It's Ishwood's last novel, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very important novel and um, very fun and light. And I think, um, so we have, um, these two brothers, Oliver and Patrick, Oliver's about to take his sannyas vows at an unnamed monastery on the Ganges in India. Um, it, it could only be Bellarmat, which is the Ramakrishna monastery there. And his brother, Patrick, who's a kind of really um, cool and powerful film producer, um, married, uh, two children, and has boyfriends on the side. Patrick shows up in India to talk Oliver out of becoming a monk. So that is, there's a kind of complete standoff between them, and the novel is about the kind of struggle and the chess game between these two brothers and how will it, uh, you know, who will win? Will the world win or will the monastery win? And um, in, in that, um, Oliver's own guru, uh, the fictional guru in the book has already died and Oliver's kind of hoping for some kind of sign, some kind of supernatural intervention to affirm him in what he's doing uh, in taking these final vows. And, you know, it, it owes a lot to Dostoevsky and, and the brothers Karamazov. Isherwood often identified himself from very young age with Alyosha, um, the youngest of the Karamazov brothers. So the, the, it's, it's a, uh, the thing that Isherwood really wished for in a religious novel was a greater sense of fun. 
Um, and, you know, he gave some wonderful lectures about this in about 1960 in California saying, you know, wh why, um, why does it always have to be gloomy if you're going to become uh, a saint? Um, and a meeting by the river is, is, is actually, everybody wins. Um, you know, the, the, the worldly brother and the, um, monkish brother, uh, they both in a way get what they want in the sense that the worldly brother is included in the monkish brother's, um, decision rather than excluded. He doesn't budge him from his path, but he's included in, uh, whatever grace is, is going to, um, come to that brother comes to them both. And it ends with laughter. Uh, it's a, it's a delightful novel. It's a kind of fiendish struggle between the two of them. It's this sort of wrestling match. And then there's just joy at the end and you feel this is the sort of cosmic joy. This is the joy of the universe. It's also quite an experimental book in the sense that it's, it's multiple first person narration. It is experimental. I mean, it's an epistolary, uh, I think there are lots of, um, books like that that exist before with, um, using letters and diaries. Um, maybe none that are quite so short. I mean, you could go all the way back to Samuel Richardson with that, right? Um, it's, um, I think unbelievably cleverly, uh, structured, um, and like a, it's played like a game in which, you know, there are certain moves and then the opposition moves again. In, in A Single Man, we get a lot about the Socratic dialogue. And in that kind of question and answer, you've got kind of one person who knows everything. Let's say it's Socrates. And then, you know, he's asked questions, but he's always... He seems to be, um, you know, he's in this conversation, but actually one person's holding all the knowledge and it's shared out through the process of conversation. And I think what's different in a single, in um, what's different in a meeting by the river is that nobody's got all the knowledge and it has to come from these opponents during the course of the game. And so there is this, um, it's a completely different way of telling a story. And there's this hope for the supernatural intervention from the Swami as if the Swami somehow knew everything. Um, but it's, it's, it is multi, it is multi vocal in that way. Um, so, yeah, so I, I find that interesting and exciting and it was a big change for Isherwood to go from writing a single man to then writing this completely other kind of novel. With a single man, many readers will come to the novel by way of Tom Ford's film adaptation. And I wonder how far you think the film is true to the spirit of the novel and also whether it leaves out anything of importance. Well, I've just been talking about laughter. Uh, and I think laughter is the key to Christopher Isherwood. I think he was a comic writer uh, in the big sense of comedy, you know, Shakespeare's comedy, Dante's comedy. I think that Tom Ford has a tragic imagination. 
and even a melodramatic one. And I think that uh, the film is remarkable and amazing and beautiful. I think it's not so much what it leaves out, it's what it adds. You know, it adds opulence, it adds suicide, it adds obsessive styling. Um, and I think that's really all Tom Ford's imagination and Tom Ford's story. Um, it adds a surname for the character George. I mean, the thing about George is that he's a mythic creature. He's like, you know, a wild thing. He's not, he doesn't have um, a surname. He's a type. Um, and Tom Ford gave his George a surname. And, you know, it happened to be the surname of a, a lover of Tom Ford's who, as I understand, you know, had, had left him. So kind of turning it into a, I don't know, like this could happen to you. You could be dumped. It was, <laughs> um, so I, I thought the movie was spellbinding and incredible, but I think it's, um, in, in, it's really very, very different from Christopher Sherwood's novel to me. The film is also very clean, I mean, beautiful to look at, but the house is immaculate. Whereas in the novel, it, it's, it's clear that the, the house is it's kind of falling down. There, there are things wrong with it, uh, that the staircase is too narrow and um, physically that the space seems to be defined rather differently between the novel and, and the film. The house that Isherwood had in mind when he was when he was writing a single man is a house that still stands uh, in Rustic Road. Uh, and once when it was on the market, I, I was able to get inside and walk around and it is a little house and it is meant to be in as it's fictionalized it's dilapidated and there's a, a sense even of it you know being kind of haunted which is something Isherwood definitely felt about the real house where he lived um but this character George is not a rich man he doesn't drive uh, a Mercedes you know he's a university professor um and as I said before, I think material wealth is really not uh, what he's all about. Comfort and freedom. Um, you know, I think his idea of the American dream, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is um, about the inner life. Forster's phrase, Isherwood was a very close friend of Forster, a thought of Forster as his literary master. And that is a really good uh, phrase uh, the inner life, which has, you know, as long as you've got enough to eat, you can have an inner life. Even if you're hungry, you can have a little bit of an inner life. And so these were very rich undergraduates and a very rich professor who lived in a beautiful house uh, in that movie. But um, yeah, that's that's a different world than the, than the one Christopher Isherwood lived in. And in fact, his whole end of uh, rustic canyon there, you know, at the end of Santa Monica, where where it um, falls down into the canyon. I mean, it's now um, become a very sought after neighborhood. But in his day, it was, you know, what he loved about it was that it was bohemian, and uh, uh, you you could, you know, it was full of one night motels, and it was it was a place where gays could freely go, you know, because it was off the beaten track and it wasn't sunset boulevard or whatever so 
that that was really quite important that um the shabbiness of it was something and christopher isherwood himself you know he loved the honky tonk and the shabby he loved it back in berlin times and he loved you know along the shoreline in santa monica he loved venice and muscle beach and all of that um appealed to him enormously much more so than uh than the flash and the glamour of um I mean, you know, he would go to the Selznicks for sure. He he loved them, but um, that wasn't his own way of life. He, you know, he spent some time as a monk and he, he meant it. <laughs> well, there's one last question, which we're asking everyone who uh, comes onto the 99 Novels podcast, uh, which is this. If you could add another book to Burgess's list of 99 novels, which one would it be and for what reasons? I would add Prodder Violet which is Christopher Isherwood's 1945 novel about uh, the fall of the left in Europe in the early 1930s and about writing his first movie. I mean, it's fictionalized, uh, writing his first movie with Bertolt Viertel. He creates a middle European artist figure uh, Friedrich Bergman, uh, and they talk about quite a lot about the, um, the revolutionary artist and, uh, how he should act, um, in a time of, uh, you know, urgency as it was in the 1930s. I think this novel, Prater Violet, is one of the most beautiful pieces of writing Christopher Sherwood made. I think it's a very, uh, under uh, underestimated masterpiece. And I think this it, is very short and it came out just at the end of the war. Uh, it was published in, in 45, you know, soon after Hiroshima and people didn't really want to think anymore about how had we gotten into this mess. They wanted to um, then talk about the heroes and celebrate. So I think Prater Violet was, was lost, um, but it's, you know, it's an introduction to the big studios um, takes the reader by the hand, shows them technology that was, you know, in those days, very glamorous. And I think it's still uh, a really wonderful account of how power uh, corrupts and how, um, you know, in what ways is it possible to speak truth to power, uh, which is really the role of, of the artist. Um, so I really love Potter Violet and it doesn't take long to read it. And uh, it fits the time scheme <laughs> of, uh, of the list of 99 novels. Catherine, thank you very much indeed for uh, both illuminating a single man and, and more widely for all of your work uh, as the editor of Isherwood's journals and his letters. And you've done so much to, to keep his uh, work in the public eye. Um, so thank you. Thank you. This was fun. You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Christopher Isherwood Diaries, Volumes 1 to 3, and The Animals, Love Letters Between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, all edited by Catherine Bucknell, are available now from all good bookshops. Catherine Bucknell can be found online at catherinebucknell.com.
For more information about the Christopher Isherwood Foundation, visit isherwoodfoundation.org. The theme music is Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D Minor by Anthony Burgess. It's performed by No Dice Collective, who can be found online at nodicecollective.com. To find out more about Anthony Burgess and how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts?